Well, thank you, Sue and Brad. Thank you, Sue, for putting together that presentation by our kids for our moms. Happy Mother's Day to you in particular, but thanks for blessing our moms today. Our church is about 22 years old. Every year on average, most of the people that have been around at our church for the, the entire history of it would probably hear, let's say, about 50 sermons. Assuming that is the only time that somebody's been around with our church for all that, that's the only time they ever open up the word. That's the only time that they were ever to hear God's word, which is unlikely for someone who's been around the course of our church for that period of time. But let's just assume that. Let's just assume that over 22 years of church existence, somebody was here, only heard the word through the time where the, uh, the sermon was being preached. 50 times a year after one year, they'd have heard the word 50 times. Two years, 100 times. So 20 years, 1,000 times. 22 years, we'd be talking about 2,100 times that someone had, uh, had ultimately you know, heard this out. So after 1,100 sermons, what does that mean? What does it do? There, interesting. (laughs) Isn't it odd how much we define ourselves by the people we listen to? Particularly where at a church like this, where we take ourselves, uh, we take the preaching of God's word very seriously. Who we listen to, who we put in the bookstore, uh, the kind of things that we recommend, the kind of teachers or conferences that we, you know, encourage people to be a part of. We we take this very very seriously, and and yet. Jason, I'm just going to ask you one favor, bud. I'm on the back on that screen back there. I don't know if there's a way of either turning that off or changing that, (laughs) but that is going to mess with my mind. Thank you so much, buddy. (laughs) I just pity you guys. If that's what you guys have to look at the whole time, I'm so sorry. Uh, There's just no way I was going to be able to talk to you for a while and see me back there talking to me about what I was talking about a half second before that. So, thanks. I appreciate it, Jay. Sorry for calling that out, but that just wasn't going to work. We can so easily, in our culture, define ourselves by who we hear. But let me show you something about the sermon one more time. I'm going to take you through verse 20 in Mark. Prior to this point, Jesus hasn't done a ton of teaching, really. He's done a lot of gathering. He's done a lot of miracles, He's done one parable, but, but chapter 4 is where he really begins to unpack. And it's not just here in Mark. There's a, there's a corresponding kind of texts in both Matthew and Luke. And if you remember about a year ago, we did the parables in Luke, and I actually taught this parable from the Gospel of Luke. So if this sounds familiar, good! A year ago, you were paying attention. If not, this only serves to illustrate my point. But... Let me show you something again from this text here, starting in verse 1. Jesus has a large crowd. He's in a boat. They're on the land. He's going to unpack for them uh, a lot more than just this parable, but he's going to start showing them some things. And so he begins his teaching sort of in Mark here by letting them understand that what he says matters, but how they listen Not that they listen and that they hear, but how they listen and how they hear will make all the difference for what's going to happen. In the parable, there's a sower who goes out to sow. Not the point, is he? Does Jesus give any details about it? No, this is not a parable that talks about evangelism. It it just isn't. 
Usually parables have one point. When we try to make them have like six points, a little unhelpful. So the sower isn't really the point. The quality of the seed isn't mentioned in this parable. Not really the point. But in the parable, we see that some seed falls on a path. Verse 4, some seed falls on rocky ground. Verse 5, some seed then a little bit later on in verse 7 falls among thorns, right? In other words, every type of ground gets seed. To skip ahead a little bit beyond what Sue and Brad read or Sue read for us, Verse 10 gives us an explanation through verse 13, and we're going we're gonna to jump back to that in just a minute. But look at Jesus' explanation of what happens then a little bit later on. Jesus' explanation of what comes next also mentions then that some of these things wind up actually representing the fact that everybody hears. When he's going to explain these different types of seed and soil, what he's pointing, or not seed, the different types of soil, the thing that's true across the board is that everyone hears the word. In Jesus' explanation, hardened hearts hear the word. In Jesus' explanation, shallow hearts hear the word. In his explanation, Distracted hearts hear the word. And in his explanation, fertile hearts, receptive hearts hear the word. What that means is that for 22 years, if you've been a Christian defining yourself by who you listen to, good, but not enough. If we're Christians who say, that we are primarily faithful to God because we listen to these kinds of preachers, we read these kinds of blogs, we digest and and ingest this kind of material, we listen to these kind of people online or on the radio, this parable would say, so what? Everybody does. That's the assumption of the parable. This is not who you listen to. It's not about the seed. It's not about the sower. Every type of ground gets gets seed Every kind of ear, every kind of heart gets something to listen to. Everybody's listening. This parable is about how you receive what you hear. That means that we need to be careful how we hear, which is why in verse 9 we read this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which must mean something different than everybody hears, right? This must mean not just that we all listen. It must mean that the point of this is how are we to listen when God speaks? So this has something to do with how you listen to sermons, without a doubt. It has more to do with what you do when you go. This is not so much a 10 to 11, a 10 to 12, in our case, uh, kind of, you know, parable. This is a from 12 noon on Sunday all the way through 10 a.m. the next Sunday. This isn't about what devotional author you use. This is a question not about when the Bible is open. It's a question about when the Bible gets shut, when the devotional message turns up, when you get off that website. When you're done, then what? 
That's what the parable focuses on, and so that's what we're going to try to pay attention to in this text. Let's go back to verse 10. One commentator called this one of the hardest parts in the book of Mark. And here's why. You would think that when God is going to explain, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you something and I want it to bear fruit in your life. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to give you the word. I'm going to sow this seed. And I want it to make a difference in your life. You would think he would back it up with Old Testament texts that kind of get at that, right? That's what we did. Brad read from Psalm 1. The possibility that someone who walks not in ungodly ways or stands in ungodly company or sits among ungodly friends, but someone who can actually bear fruit is a person who digs into the Lord and not into the world. But that's not the kind of Old Testament text that Jesus referenced in the middle. Sue stopped reading in verse 9. Listen to verse 10. It says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, and here he quotes from a number of different Old Testament texts. He says, so that they may, they may indeed see, but not perceive that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And then he wraps up those somewhat obscure Old Testament references in verse 13 by saying, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Well, then how will you understand all the parables? Let's go back to those Old Testament references, though, for a sec, because if this is me, if I'm the editor of the book of Mark, I'm going to scrub this part because I fully just have to admit, I don't totally get it. Some of what Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament are moments where it seems like somebody can't understand what God is saying because their hearts are hardened to God. So there's a time in Deuteronomy, there's another couple points from prophets where the prophets are saying, you don't get this. You could, but your hearts are too hard. Therefore, you don't, and he uses this line, you see, but you don't perceive. You hear, but you don't understand. So in other words, the fault is on the Old Testament audience who has a hard heart. That's why the prophet's message or Moses' message can't get across to them. But there are other times that get more complex than that. Isaiah, you remember his great big call in in chapter 6? He sees the Lord. He feels the trembling of the temple because of the majesty and the glory of God. Then he recognizes his own sin. An angel brings a coal, touches his lips. And it's not as though the unclean goes to the clean, but the clean now comes to the unclean in a miraculous sort of paradigm-shifting move. And now he's holy. And so now his words can be holy. His lips can be holy, not unclean like they used to be. And so God says, I want you to go out there and I want you to tell people because they're not going to repent and I just need them to know that they had a chance and they didn't take it. What a horrible way to begin Isaiah's ministry. I want you to be a faithful prophet, but I want you to know it's not going to work at all. That seems a little bit of a, a downer for a guy who's just starting off, right? That wasn't exactly the text that was preached at my ordination, just so you know. I want you to be faithful to preach here, but just so you know, this is just so that I can call these people guilty, so they've heard the truth, so that I can judge them. That's kind of the way it is in Isaiah 6. It kind of reminds you of the way that God is talking with Moses about Pharaoh, or the way that, that the story of Pharaoh is written. 
Sometimes a word comes to him and he can't hear it because his heart is, his heart is hard and hardened. Like he did the hardening. But you, if you remember when we went through Exodus, we also had that dilemma of reading the times where sometimes he doesn't respond and it's because God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's really tricky to understand. So let me ask you, citizens of the kingdom of God, what do you do with that? Well, I submit to you, moments like that are the moment you enter into this parable. Moments like that, where things are presented to us that we have to accept both realities, even though in our minds we can't necessarily cram them together. They're like parallel lines that give us boundaries in our thinking, that if you try to bend either one of them, you really distort the truth of them. We want to take those parallel lines and make them meet because that feels more comfortable. But do that. Bend either of these truths. Well, God did it to Pharaoh, so he's not responsible. No, God's sovereign and Pharaoh's responsible. Bend either of those and you're a heretic. Keep them parallel. You're just going to feel uncomfortable. How are you doing with that, citizens of the kingdom of God? Too many outside the kingdom take those realities and they dismiss them, which is exactly what Jesus says will happen. Oftentimes, the test of our citizenship in the kingdom is whether God says something we can't understand, we easily dismiss it. We can feel so discouraged about that as Christians today, can't we? There are so many stances that we take that are very unacceptable, incredibly you know, sort of becoming more and more the cause of Christian persecution these days. Now, sometimes we're just stupid in the way we present things, and we, we ought not be that way. But sometimes to hold to a truth is just going to set us up to be misunderstood and then to be vilified. And we ask the question, oh my goodness, couldn't have been better in the 50s or oh, maybe back in the early days. What about America's glorious history where everybody always heard the truth and they always accepted it and every American was a Christian? Like, oh, come on, reread your history books for one thing. But also, let's just go back 2,000 years. Nothing new, or nothing about our situation today is new, believer. Brothers and sisters, citizens of the kingdom of God, understand this. Jesus' inaugural text about what it will mean borrows from Old Testament texts about what it will mean that sometimes when God says stuff that's hard for his creatures to understand, the merit of their heart, the quality of their heart is tested in that moment. Create a straw man argument you can easily understand and easily then blow over and dismiss. Great, you've basically set yourself outside the kingdom. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in these 10, 11, 12, and 13 verses here in between. An elementary parable is given to us. A pretty tough Old Testament reference is given to us. And then the explanation. We're going to look at the explanation, but I just want to help you understand sort of the final exam over this one. We can get the story because it's great. Jesus makes it so easy that, as been said, a child can wade in it and an elephant can swim in it. That's kind of the way parables work. They have these concepts that everybody can understand, but to really unpack them, take a lot more. And the question is, when you don't understand God, what do you do? Do you back away? Do you sort of recreate him in a way that you can just dismiss him so out of hand? 
Or do you, do you lean in and say, okay, if this is the creator speaking to the creature, then I'm going to assume right out of the gate, not everything he says is going to be easy for me to understand. And Jesus said, I know that both kinds of people are out there. I know that when I sow faithful seed, it's going to fall on a bunch of different hearts. So as we move into verses 14 and on, and we hear the explanations of what happens, let me just warn you against this. I am not preaching this sermon to diagnose three different kinds of hearts out there and assuming the good hearts in here. I just don't think that's a wise way for us to read this parable. Instead, I want to talk to you about four ways you can hear the word of God. You can hear the word of God. You might see evidence of this out there, but I'm talking about us. These are four things that can happen anytime the word comes out. It is out. Everyone hears. The question is, what do we do with what we hear? And the first danger is this. We can forget God's word. Not them, us. We can forget God's word. 1,100 sermons over the course of our church history. And for a lot of them, it's easy to forget. Told this story before, and I'll tell it again. But early on, when I was an intern here, and Don DeVries, our founding pastor, was here, everybody who remembers Don just remembers how precise he was with his sermons. And I would, I would be in awe. He would give me a, a text uh, the script of his message. I would have it there sitting in the front row. He would preach it. And he was having a conversation like this, but he was working through the word-for-word text of his sermon. And I'd realized just how precise and how detailed he was in his message. I, I could be in awe at his preaching. And so after one Sunday, uh, Roman and I were talking in my house, and he was mentioning this message. And I was like, that wow, sounds like a great great sermon. I was having a little trouble because I was sort of trying to think of like what Don was saying and how I had heard it. And I was like, boy, this is amazing how quickly I can forget. So I made a reference to Don preaching and he looked at me, he goes, Taryn, you preach that. I said, oh, okay. So when I say the first danger isn't about them out there, I'm saying it's about us, okay? It's about the preacher and the preached too. We can all forget the word of God. Here's the way Jesus says of the parable. Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. That's verse four. Verse 14, he begins to explain that. And he says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So the explanation in verses 14 and 15 about what happens in verse 4 is that because some seed falls along a very hard path, it is easily accessible for birds to come and take it away. The birds could take seed from everywhere, but in this particular place, it's just so easy for birds to take it away. Explanation, some hearts are so hard that it's just so easy for Satan to immediately make it possible for them to just forget what they've just heard. That does seem to be the activity of Satan when he's presented through scripture. Zechariah 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What is the best way for Satan to work that accusation? 
It's for him to forget his original standing as a priest and instead to remember what he would accuse him of instead. Satan is a deceiver in two ways. One way that we often think about is the lies that he tells. But the other way that Satan is a deceiver and an accuser is the way that he gets us to forget what we should know about ourselves in the very beginning. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's also called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. How discouraging a text. I don't know you, but when I'm aware of or thinking about uh, the work of Satan and his, his cohorts in my life, I think about it sporadically. I think about it a little bit. This is something that might happen a little while, and then he, then he leaves. You know, hmm. Revelation 12 gives us a very different timetable for Satan's ongoing adversarial work. He is day and night accusing them before God. Which means, though I do believe I have encountered, and I believe you have encountered, uh, the work of Satan the adversary, the Satan, really, um, and his cohorts. I'm not entirely positive we've had face-to-face encounters with Satan the way that Jesus did. That's because it seems to be that most of his work is happening at a very different level. What's happening with us is satanic, to be sure. But the main work he's doing is in taking and replacing, taking and replacing, taking, and replacing. You hear about the thieves that broke into the store? They didn't take anything that night. But nobody realized they had been in until the end of the day when they were tallying the books because what the thieves did is they replaced all the price tags. Now, this is clearly, this is an old illustration, right? This would be very tough to do with UPCs and stuff like that. But they had gone into a store, taken everything that was expensive and made it invaluable. It, it made it cheap. Taken everything that was cheap made it super valuable. And then what did they do? The next day, they came on in and bought all the expensive stuff for absolutely no money because they had known how to deceive those who owned it into thinking that what was valuable was worthless and what was worthless was valuable. That's the work of Satan. But Satan isn't the point. This isn't the story, right, primarily of the thorns, And of the birds, this is a question of why is it the birds were able to get it in the first place? It's because the soil was hard. Those who are hearing are hardened. First danger. Second danger comes then in verse 5. A sower went out to sow. Another seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root, and it withered away. Jesus' explanation, first, the sower sows the word, 
And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, when they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is a tough illustration for us to think about in Northeast Ohio, where you put a shovel into any plot of ground and all you pull up is a big hunk of clay. Our soil's a little different. But this metaphor makes a ton of sense in Israel. Where shallow ground is a real problem. This metaphor, by the way, makes no sense where Christine grew up in central Pennsylvania, where you put a soil into any bit of ground, even like it seems the pavement, and all you get is just, uh, you know, like 18 inches of just beautiful topsoil. That's there. This is here. And the target is clearly shallow listeners. Seed that fell among rocky ground doesn't have much soil, but it has enough to give the impression of life, the impression of something that's really going to matter and really going to stand out. But the problem is that endurance, verse 17, lasts for a while, but then things come, tribulation, persecution, and it arises on account of the word, and so immediately it falls away. Frankly, if it's hard for us to understand this in Ohio, it's not because of our soil. It's because of our affluence. It's because of our relative comfort. You know who gets this? Is the people that we get to talk to in Nepal. Those who get this are those that you read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those who get this are the folks that for whom being baptized means not getting invited back for family dinners at, you know, every weekend, or you don't get to go home for Christmas. You don't get to go back and be invited to Thanksgiving dinner. You don't get to be a part of the family business anymore. You are cast out and on your own because you've identified with Jesus. That's what it would look like for tribulation or persecution to disqualify someone from bearing fruit in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean this doesn't apply to us. It just means we have to understand how little I think we understand the word endurance. How little at times we can throw away the confidence that we have, verse 35 through 39 in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Listen to the author where he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Why? For this reason. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and persevere, or sorry, and preserve their souls. So I'm not trying to shame us because of how comfortable our lives are, but I am trying to wake us up just a little bit to recognize that when we spend all of our time in fellowship with somebody else, just saying, I'm sorry, your life is so hard. There's a portion of that that's true. But if it ends there, it's a lie. 
Because if all we do is show sympathy to somebody because their life is difficult, we're creating the illusion that somehow that's not the way life ought to be in the kingdom of God. And yet that's the way life has always been in the kingdom of God. To use the words from a character in The Chosen, that's not the way it is for our people. That is not our people's way. Now she's talking about the Jewish plight, living under the occupation of the Romans. But how true is that for a Christian? In one sense, we say, oh, brother, sister, that is very difficult. And our people's way is to endure in the face of that kind of opposition. So let's talk about how. With that being so hard, with this being so tough, hasn't the best fellowship you've had with other believers not just been sympathetic, but it's the moment that points to what what Mike and Colette did up here. I love that moment, Mike. I'm going to remember that for a very long time because that's how I pray. I pray hard, weak, and, and Jesus is there with me. The Spirit's there with me. Here's, here's what he's trying to say. It's hard, and I get it. I came, and I know I am sympathetic to the difficulty he's got right now. Let me, let me perfect his prayers right now for you. And the best fellowship is when somebody else does that with me. Oh, gosh, I'm discouraged. hard. I'm tired. Yeah, I know, Darren. But you're not, you're not a believer who shrinks back. You're one of us in in this family, in this church, in this kingdom. Here's what we do. We're not those who shrink back. We're not those who are destroyed. Darren, we're of those who have faith and we're of those who preserve our souls. And so how can I help you? Because right now, here's what I know is happening. Day and night, Satan is up here accusing you. He wants to lie to you. And so let me help you not to have a hard heart. But let me also help you know this. We don't want your faith to be shallow. Darren, I want your roots to grow deep into the one who also day and night is perfecting your prayers. Also day and night is sympathetic to your struggles. But the end of the story isn't just that this is hard. It's that you're going to keep walking. You're going to keep growing. You're going to keep sending your roots deeper so that you don't have to, one, forget the word, but second danger, we don't have to give up on the word. Church, this is why everybody else in here needs you. Because their hearts can be hard and their hearts can be shallow. The sun rises, verse 6, and the seed gets scorched because it doesn't have a root. Let's help each other drive our roots a little bit more deeply into what God's promised rather than the way the world has lied because the sun will hit everyone. Third danger then comes in verse 7. Parable begins, listen, behold, a sower went to sow. Third danger, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Jesus explains in verse 14. The sower sows the word. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And to separate them from what we just heard, it seems like there's good soil. It seems like this isn't just a shallow response. It seems like they have also endured tribulation. The sun has come and shone down on them, and it has been tough. And then 
everything looked better. Everything looked more important. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter into enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. If I'm saying I don't know how much we really get the temptation of the second one, you sure get this one. Know it? Don't know it? This is you. This is your life. This is the danger that plagues every one of the families growing up. Every one of you who's thinking about, how am I going to build my life? How am I going to build my career? You are told, think about what in this world you need to care about. Think about what riches will provide for you and think about all the other things you can desire. That's the way to build your life. Now, if you're a little bit further on, your midlife, what are the crises that arise? I don't have enough to care about in this world. Or I cared about and it didn't work out. Ah, midlife crisis. I don't have enough of those riches that have been lying to me my whole life. In fact, enough is part of the lie. But oh, I don't have enough. Midlife crisis. What else happens? Midlife crisis. There have been so many other things I could have desired and built my family for. And I, oh man, I look back and I see everybody else seems to be so much more successful. At least that's what everybody on Facebook says. Everybody's doing better and everybody's going better. Oh my goodness, how am I going to make it? And with every rotation through that, the weed makes another just pass and the thorns choke out another cycle and one after another after another, there's no fruit at the end of the seed. Why? Or at the end of the stalk, why? No seed, no fruitfulness. Why? Because it got choked out by all this other stuff and the lie of enough. There's a book I'm going to be reading this summer. I don't know, we could do it together if somebody wants to read it with me. But it's one that was recommended to me by Joshua Alm, the pastor of the church that we met at for a little while before we were here, Ascension Lutheran over there in North Olmstead. Lutheran guy loves Jesus, loves, uh, loves the preaching of the word. Brilliant guy. And just, we, we met together one time and he just said, you have to read this book. Just, you know, when we talk about things that are plaguing your church or my church, you just have to read this book, Darren. It's called Seculosity. I, I don't know a lot about the author, but the point of his book is how everything in life is becoming a religion. Everything in life is becoming something to which you must pledge yourself. Remember, I, I had a friend right, coming out, right out of Bible college, and he said, hey, we're going we're gonna to get together because there's a guy coming over. He's got some important stuff to want to talk about. I, I literally thought I was going to a Bible study. But it turns out this guy was selling Amway. But if you took out the word Amway and you replaced in the word gospel, we would have been having a Bible study because every other word was the same. Amway deserves the devotion of your life. Ooh. The, the recruiting of others into this program will be the way, one, that you succeed and that they succeed. So Amway evangelism, kingdom of God evangelism. Amway discipleship, kingdom of God kind of discipleship. And frankly, that's just because Amway used the same language. Everything else says the same thing. Put your kids in sports, they're going to own you. At least that's the way it seems to be. 
Put your kids into this. Put your life into this. You work for a company that says you just, you have to think primarily about what we're doing. It's the way that we hear every other appeal out there. And the book is just trying to peel back some of that. And so it's taking this religion kind of language and the secular things that are out there. And it's just kind of combining them together and saying this, this seculosity is so dangerous. Listen to this quote. He says, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we, here's the punchline, right? If we got enough, we would be enough. All he's doing is taking another way and talking about the wrapping of the thorns around the potential of a believer to bear fruit in the kingdom of God. And what we hear are that the way that we care about this world, the way that riches lie to us, and the way we desire all these other things choke out our ability to be fruitful, fruitful Christians. I'll say, if there's one it's wise for you to talk about with somebody else, I would recommend this one. I, I don't want to say that I don't look across our church and see the potential for our hearts to be hardened. I, I do. I, I know that. I know the way bitterness works in us. I know the way that isolation has kind of worked in us. Uh, I just, Lenny, do you mind if I just quote something you told me last week? Didn't really get your permission for this, but if you don't mind, I'm just going to reference something you said. Lenny said last week, after having been, a little, been away a little while, that in, in the way that he was feeling it, distance took doubt and could turn it into unbelief. I thought, that was, what a great diagnosis. And Lenny's not just speaking for Lenny. Lenny's just leading, reading my mail right there, right? I, I feel the way that doubt slides to unbelief because of my distance from other believers who are helping me. So I don't want to say, hey, guys, you have no danger of having your hearts hardened against God and not being able to bear fruit. It's, it's, this is a common thing. This is why Jesus says it. And I don't want to say that a shallow understanding of God and his word is, is not something we're susceptible to. I just want to say, if you come away from this and you don't think about how you're distracted, I, I just think we're missing one of the main threats to our fruitfulness as a church. It doesn't matter where you're at, beginning of your career, middle of your career, looking back over your life. I think we just need to ask the question, are we in danger of ignoring God's word because this threat of enough, being enough, getting enough, is choking us out from producing 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold kind of fruit in the kingdom? So far, I got to admit, parable is a bit of a downer, isn't it? Danger, danger, danger. It just seems like we're going to screw up everywhere. Except for this. Understand, there is a promise that comes at the end of this. And if we're, we're nothing but warnings, we, we might come away and, hey, happy Mother's Day, moms. Ah, here we are. But I, I can say as a dad and reflecting with Christine uh, over her time, this is Christine's 25th Mother's Day, which is pretty cool to think about. First one. You were still with mama. You've been with mama, but you know what I mean there. 
which is my little pro-life plug, I guess, right there, right? <laughs> but but in, in, in that, Christine and I look back, and we see fruit, and we're like, ah, I don't know where that came from. Because I see all our weakness, and I see our kids' strength. I see my lack of imagination. I see their creativity. I see the ways that I, we can turn away from the Lord. That my heart can, can be hard. It can be distracted. It can be shallow. And I see real fruit coming. And I'm like, Lord, w- what happened? Here's here. I'll show you what happened. There were times that the soil of my kids' hearts were tilled up. And the word did what seed does. It just got in and started to bear fruit. So verse 8, other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30, 60, 100 fold. The sower sows the word. Verse 20, here's the explanation then of that. Those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Here's a promise, both for moms and for all of us with moms. Moms are here, moms are gone. You can bear fruit. You don't have to be hard. You don't have to be shallow. You don't have to be distracted. Your heart can be good soil in that when the word comes, you lean into receiving it. You accept it. That when you read something, you don't immediately try to scrutinize it, figure out all the qualifications, put asterisks all over the text. You say, if this is God addressing me from his word, whether spoken or read, then I'm going to accept it. Because remember, it's not the hearing the word that makes it good fruit. Everybody heard. It's the accepting it. That's the Jesus explanation for it, guys. So, like, one question. When something comes at you from the Lord, from his word, do you lean in to try and understand how this is true or do you lean back and try to figure out all the ways it's not? Because I think that can be one question that just diagnoses, do we do what Jesus said, the good soil kind of heart does, is that we accept it. And then what does the soil do to create the fruit? Oh my word. Word. This is just one of the things about botany that should just blow our minds away. Josiah has been studying all these life science kind of stuff that a tiny seed can produce way more than what seems to be contained in it. It's just a miracle, isn't it? It seems scandalous that people should be able to just take a tiny seed, put it in dirt, and all of a sudden something grows up that's beneficial to us. But that's the way we can wind up being. Now, the, the point isn't about the sower. But let me just say this. This parable should give us confidence to speak truth from God's word to people. It should give us confidence that we don't have to use anger to beat our kids up. But we can reflect the long-suffering heart of God to say what's true and to wait for us to accept it. To encourage us to accept it along. But... Mom, you're free from being angry to try and constrain you know, good behavior in your kids. You don't have to compel them to change. One of the wonderful things about what happens well is that it happens. So let's model for our kids what it looks like to accept the word from God. Let's confess before our kids the times that we're screwing up and when we're demonstrating hearts that are, that are hard and that are distracted and that are shallow. Let's make it appealing to bear fruit in the kingdom of God.
Let's repel bitterness out of our lives. Let's make sure that the distractions and the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world aren't things that we desire more than God. Let's, let's live for this kind of hope. Last two weeks, we heard the book of Ephesians. There was so much that came across. Those, those are long sermons, by the way. Good job putting up with them. But we heard in Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's two verses. Those were just two verses with some of the most amazing truths. Let me encourage you. Don't let Satan steal that away from you. Don't have a heart that's so hard that that could just be quickly gone. Just a bunch of raw kind of words. The truth that you have an inheritance that's far bigger than what you experience in this life, that's, that's just eternity shaping. It's also tomorrow shaping. Don't, don't let it be stolen away. We heard in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what he's addressing there? That conflict in the kingdom of God is one of the biggest ways that the sun shines down on the seed in the kingdom of God. It's so easy for us to have rocky hearts so that things like this are so easy to give up on. We read in Ephesians that we're to look carefully then how to walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time because these days are evil. We heard that we're not to be foolish, but we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. And we're not supposed to get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But we're to be filled with the Spirit so that we're addressing one another. We're singing to one another. We're giving thanks to God. We're submitting ourselves to one another. We're, we're not going to do that if this world looks better, if the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world are choking out our ability to bear fruit. There's just three verses, essentially, three texts that come out. I'm just so grateful that Paul ends Ephesians where he ended it with the promise that in all circumstances we can take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In all circumstances we can take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in all circumstances we can be praying then at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. A reminder just from this book that we can persevere in God's word. This is our dive back into Mark. On your bulletin, I asked you three questions. This kind of taking this and, and kind of applying it back into the book of Ephesians, but they may be ones for you to rethink about as we've been studying this book, as your community groups are wrapping it up, as you dive in, is just, just think about how's God's love for you functioning amidst Satan's temptations? How's God's grace strengthening your everyday battles? And how is God's presence informing my routines and my decisions? The other good news is, and thanks for getting us some communion supplies. We get to take communion together. One of the things that we do when we take the Lord's Supper together is that we confess with sometimes hardened, with sometimes shallow, and with sometimes distracted hearts that we're not the solution. 
Jesus knew all of this. He knew the people he was preaching to, and he knew that soon he would die for them. The good news, that includes us, us who are tempted in these same ways, but us who don't plead necessarily the condition of our sacrifices before God, but we plead Jesus' sacrifice for us. So let me pray for us. We're going to sing together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper in the midst of that. Father, I thank you that you have diagnosed us in so many ways through the words that your son spoke and that your spirit has applied for us, inspired and retained and helped us now to think over. So, Father, thank you that through your spirit you've spoken to us. I pray that where we're in danger, we would be eager to find grace in you. Father, where others are in danger, I pray that we would be eager to find help for them and encouragement for them. But for all of us, Lord, we are grateful. Filled with your spirit, we give thanks to you for sending your son. And so I pray, help us in our words and in our deeds to be able to glorify Jesus now. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.